Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The war in Ukraine and to some extent Israel have drained away U.S. weapons and ammunition stockpiles. Numerous studies have cited a shortage of shells, missiles, and to some extent launch platforms. And whether the industrial supply chain and the military's own organic supply chain have the capacity to sustain the demand. We get one view now from the National Armaments Consortium Vice President, retired General Al Abramson. General Abramson, good to have you back. Thanks for having me back, Tom. Yeah, and a lot has happened since we spoke during the Association of the U.S. Army Conference just a couple of months ago. That was just days after the terrorist attacks in Israel by Hamas, and we know what's happened and ensued in the world since then, and now there's all these debates about what we do next in Ukraine. What is the armaments, especially the ordnance situation, from the standpoint of the consortium these days? We continue to roll forward. So the senior leaders within the Department of Defense a couple of years ago had already determined that we need to make sure that we have capabilities for today and into the future. And so not luckily, but with deliberate decision, those kinds of decisions to ensure we have enough capabilities, not only for our warfighters, but for our allies moving forward, we have enough in our supply chain. Now, does the current geopolitical situation challenge some of that stuff? Absolutely. But we have a lot of folks watching that and watching our levels moving forward. Well, there is a shortage now. Say, let's take the howitzer shell. That seems to be the commodity that a lot of these reports focus on, both news reports and think tank reports. And a lot of places make those. Does it take an international, I guess, uh, sense of cooperation to have U.S. stockpiles refilled, but maybe by foreign manufacturers that can make the same spec type of shell because it's an international commodity? Is that where we're headed, do you think? Those are decisions that clearly I don't want to get in front of DOD and the State Department on making those decisions, but I do know that we do have allies that have the capacity to make those munitions and kind of mitigate some of that demand signal that we're seeing today. Uh, Within specifically the field artillery round that you're talking about, the 155 round within the United States, we've already started to build a new shell plant, if you will, Uh, to get after some of that demand signal. But again, some of our allied partners have that capability, but that's really a discussion with the State Department and OSD and Department of Defense and how we do that partnership to have them build some technical specs that we own. Because that capacity then can be built up relatively quickly. I was talking with someone else recently, and they said, well, we could build and create in some manner another submarine production capability, but it would take billions and billions of dollars in about six or 10 years before it could start building submarines. Not quite that challenging in, say, the munitions area. Sure, sure. Not that quite challenging, but still the process and the procedures and the EPA and and all of those gates that you have to go through to go from a greenfield, like nothing in there, to an environment that has explosives and all of these things that can really hurt. It really is a process that has to undergo. And just why not use some of our allied nations? Some of the things within the geopolitical realm that you kind of touched on, and I can go on and say with Taiwan, we have to look at Taiwan as well in 2025. We have some strategic partners in that region of the world that potentially we can partner with to build some of our munitions. But again, that's a Department of Defense, State Department kind of decision. 
And would it be fair to say that the Armaments Consortium maybe joins some of the other groups in saying to the Pentagon, you need to have a much more steady demand signal and not a ramp up and then nothing for a few years and then now we need 7 million new shells next year type of thing, but some kind of a steady approach to this so that there is that continuous supply chain and everything stays in spec and stays with an economic you know, understanding. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Two points on that as, as an acquisition professional myself while I'm in uniform and now as the National Armaments Consortium, we've had the ability to speak with some of the DOD leadership. I know Department of Defense is going through a review uh, we spoke with the Army Science Board, and one of the things that's just an example of the folks that we continue to speak with is the ability to stabilize funding, predictability funding really does help the industrial base maintain those production levels without too much. What you don't want to have is valleys and peaks of valleys and then a time of no water, if you will. And so being able to get across those particular areas are always good. We're speaking with retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson. He's now vice president of the National Armaments Consortium. And on more, even more current issue, the National Defense Authorization Act looks like they'll avoid, you know, missing a year of 60 or so and getting that done in Congress. The consortium has had some reaction to that. And there's some important provisions in the area of armaments and energetics. Maybe a quick review of what you see that's important in the NDAA. Yes. So one of the things that we see from a National Armaments Consortium perspective, this is the first time in a long time, at least from my perspective, that the Department of Defense and Congress, with the help of Congress, is really putting some verbiage, some policy out to get after tomorrow's types of weapons. And so that we're no longer using yesterday's explosive, yesterday's propellants, but really getting after and investing in what we can do for over the horizon and into the future. And along with that is looking at our supply chain, because we get some of those upstream chemicals from other nations that are no longer friendly to the United States. And how can we do to bring some of those chemicals into the continental United States or more friendlier nations? Right. There is Section 242. It's pretty high up in the bill. Consideration of lethality in the analysis of alternatives for munitions. I guess you wouldn't want to have an alternative that's less lethal or a weaker explosion just because the supplies are local. That's correct. And so one of those as a perfect lead into that is CL-20 is one of those things that people will talk about, which was made at China Lake. China Lake CL-20 was made at China Lake a couple of years ago. And it has very good explosive characteristics, but we in the United States have not mastered the ability to make it at an affordable rate. And the language that we see now within the National Defense Authorization Act now will give some credence, now will allow the Department of Defense to do some investment towards making that much more powerful, if you will, explosive at a much more affordable rate and potentially roll it into some of our weapon systems, which we currently don't have in our weapon systems today. I guess it's easier to make it in a less stable fashion, but then it wouldn't be safe for transport and so forth. The trick is getting that final processing in such a way that, and that's expensive, that it can be practical to deploy. Yeah. One of the things that's actually pretty interesting that I learned is going from laboratory to benchmark and from bench to massive production, although we say it, There are some significant leaps and significant gates that need to be met. 
And it's not that simple. So although we can make CL20 and investigate it at much smaller levels, to take it at a grand level to make technical term maybe a couple of million pounds is an auspicious goal to be made and really needs to be looked at at an industrial level. And getting back to our original question about capacity and supplies, something in the NDAA Section 245 is the authority to establish the Defense Industrial Base Munition Surge Capacity Critical Reserve. That's a mouthful to procure long lead time items and components to accelerate delivery of munitions. This is in the bill. And so another great language in the bill that will allow, because within the acquisition community, it's called a bona fide need. Some of those long lead items, until you get funded for said capability, you can't purchase those long lead items until the funds come. But what this particular part of the bill allows us to do is, well, if we know something is coming, if we know that it's coming, then it allows us to purchase ahead of time those items, those commodities that'll take about 12 months to make, 18 months to make, and we'll have them in stockage. So that means we will cut down on the manufacturing time to get after those explosives and those next-gen capabilities. So I think that's another powerful statement within the acquisition community to get capabilities out the door. All right. Sounds like there's a lot of moving parts here, though, but this is something of top concern in DOD is this whole supply chain for the things you shoot at the enemy. And again, uh, my short time in the military, specifically working within the acquisition community, I have not seen a concerted and combined effort to really address the supply chain issues that the military faces on a daily basis. Now, there's challenges across the board, but again, just to see the language in there, which will migrate down into Department of Defense senior leaders for us to get after this challenge, I think is a great thing looking forward. I think it's an absolutely great thing and the right thing to do. Retired Army Brigadier General Al Abramson is vice president of the National Armaments Consortium. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we, uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance, And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply That's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, Makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting and said, go ahead and I want to hear from you. And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture And what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture. 
because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. 
your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.